Today is our third look at volume three of Luke, and we're seeing an increasing contrast between Jesus and Judaism, the, uh, you know, the whole religion that's going on in Israel. Uh, it's been pretty clear from much earlier on that Jesus was doing something new. He was walking around and he was saying that what he's doing is not compatible with the system that's been in place because the system that's in place has been corrupted. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been there for a while, and it's, uh, it's not going to change anytime soon. So he's saying that he's doing something new, and it's not compatible with this old system that's been around uh, because the, uh, the people of Israel have turned it into something that was not what God originally had instructed. So uh, much of what Luke presents highlights how Jesus is all or nothing, He's absolute. You can't take part of him. You can't try to add him on or squeeze him in. You have to take all of him or you have no part with him at all. He accepts and rejoices. Jesus accepts and rejoices over those who hear the gospel and repent. And he curses and will punish forever those who do not. It's extremely standoffish language. It's very, uh, it's, it's very dogmatic the way that he speaks. Uh, especially the people who knowingly and willingly hear the gospel and reject it, uh, there's a greater punishment, a greater judgment reserved for them. That's very combative language. Believing in Jesus is not a matter of doing external religious behavior. It's not, it's not about doing rituals where you do good things or religious things to try to earn points with God. It has to come from an internal transformation. It has to come from something on the inside. It has to be true and sincere it's got to be love and compassion for your enemy, for your, for your neighbor. It's got to include loving uh, and being fascinated with spending time with Jesus in his word, relying upon God in prayer as his child, uh, to him as our father, not as a beggar, but not as a business transaction, but really just to appeal to him, knowing that he is our only source of strength, our only source of hope. All of that's just kind of laid out in, in, in this third volume that we're approaching in Luke. And today we're looking at uh, chapter 11, verse 14, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 54. Uh, I, I wanted to go into part of chapter 12, but I just don't think we'll have the time, and so we're going to end it at the end of chapter 11. We'll see how Jesus uh, takes this very dogmatic stance, this very firm stance uh, against his opposition. Because as he speaks and as he makes it very, very clear that he's very distinct from the system that's in place in Israel, his opposition gets riled up. The controversy begins to continue in a more heated manner. People don't like to be called sinners. People don't like to be called to repentance for living the way that they do. And it's weird because, you know, everybody loved how much Jesus cares for people. They love how much Jesus healed people, how much Jesus fed people, how much Jesus had compassion on people. They saw all that stuff and they said, oh, we like this Jesus. We want to make him king. They loved how he had power and wisdom and kindness and humility. And they said, that's a good man. We like this Jesus. But even though they liked parts of him, there's always that one thing. There's always that one thing that, that Jesus says that just doesn't fit with someone's worldview, with someone's preferred moral position. There's always that one thing that just infuriates someone about Jesus, something that they disagree with vehemently. They like everything except that one thing 
because that one thing is the one thing that calls them to repent. It's the one thing that says they are absolutely wrong about something that they were passionate about in terms of how the world should be and how society should be in what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. Jesus has opinions on these things. And so people who also have opinions on these things, when they find that they're in disagreement with Jesus, it becomes this heated issue and their true colors begin to show. Conflict and controversy would always boil up around Jesus simply because he makes it so abundantly clear that you can't take parts of him that you like. You take all of him or you have nothing to do with him. You submit to him as Lord or he doesn't know who you are. So piece by piece, you'll see Jesus face off against uh, people of various spiritual dispositions that oppose Jesus, people who don't want to repent. And they'll have excuses, reasons in their minds, but excuses, or they'll have these different ways of avoiding repentance. And that's what we're going to look at today. You'll see Jesus move from a more defensive position where, you know, he'd be doing his thing and then someone accuses him of something or asks him a question and he'll answer it and kind of diffuse the situation. That was a more defensive position that he's been in previously, but he's going to move from that to an overtly offensive position where instead of just fielding questions and disarming some of the accusations coming at him, he starts going after some of the people that, uh, that he needs to talk to, people that have judgment coming at them, he starts to speak in a, a more overtly offensive tone with them. Instead of just reacting, he will actively go after, and he'll take initiative to just light these people up with words that force everyone to choose a clear stance. You're either with me or you're against me. That's the way that he puts it. We'll look at three fights in particular, uh, three, three major fights that, uh, that take place. Uh, they're all going to be different kinds of unbelief that he is going after. And then uh, there'll be a remark about himself or there's some kind of revelation about Jesus. It's, it, it'll just say something about the unbelief and something that is true about Jesus, okay? So uh, the structure goes like this. It'll be Jesus versus spiritual denial in chapter 11, verses 14 to 28. And then it'll be Jesus versus stubborn skepticism. In verses 29 to 36, uh, is that right? Did I, did I put that right? I might have, no, I got that right, yeah. And then the third one, I'm sorry, I got the third one, uh, I, I mistyped it. Uh, Jesus versus hypocrisy and works righteousness. Hypocrisy and works righteousness, that'll be verses 37 all the way to 54, okay? Verses 37 to 54, sorry about the typo there. Uh, let's start with Jesus versus spiritual denial in chapter 11, verse 14. It says this, now he, Jesus, now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, stop for there for a second. Uh, that's the setup. Jesus is demonstrating his messiahship, right? When he's throwing out demons and when he's healing people and things, that's, that's a, a clear indicator that he is the messiah, that he is the savior, because he's saving someone from the powers of hell. He's saving someone from some kind of a physical ailment. And so it shows that he is a savior. He's a messiah. It shows his compassion. It shows his, uh, his sovereignty, 
It shows his ability to grant life and healing. If you remember from uh, way back in chapter 7, verses 20 to 22, there's this moment where John the Baptist sends some disciples to Jesus to go, are you truly the one? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the, the one that the scriptures were talking about? And Jesus says, look around. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. Figure it out. And he uses his healing powers, the fact that he can cast out demons and heal people, as the clear evidence that he is the Messiah. He indeed is the one that all the scriptures were talking about. It's a demonstration that he is the Christ. He is the Savior. He is the anointed one of God. So Jesus' enemies respond in basically two ways. Uh, first, some of them, you know, it's a big crowd, and they see the healing take place, the demons thrown out, the one that makes this guy mute, and then the guy can talk, and he doesn't have a demon anymore. So the crowd marvels, but some of them, not the whole crowd, but some of them, they go, oh, okay, this is from the power of Beelzebul, right? This is from the power of Beelzebul, which is, uh, that's used in this, in this passage here, basically as a nickname for Satan. You'll see Jesus kind of interchangeably uh, use those two names together, right? Beelzebul and Satan, you'll just do that. Beelzebul is really related to Baal worship, false god, back in the day. But in this context, he just connects it as a, a nickname for Satan. So they go, either he's from the, uh, uh, using the power of Beelzebul, or there's this other small contingent of the crowd that says that uh, he's, uh, he's done all the healing, and they're like, okay, yeah, we saw the healing, but show us another sign, then we'll believe. Show us another sign. And that's, that's kind of a ridiculous position because no one else can heal. No one else can cast out demons. He's clearly done something that no one else can do. He has established himself as the most powerful person in the, in the universe and uh, the only one who is like that. He's unique. He's set apart. So for them to ask for another sign is, uh, is unnecessary. The fact that there is no one like him is the sign. But Jesus responds to, the, to their accusation in three ways. Okay? And I'll, I'll kind of show it to you all, all at once, uh, verses 17 uh, through, through 20. Okay? It says, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will, this kingdom, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So right there in those sentences, I, you know, you read that and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a bit much. It's kind of hard to untangle it all. So I'm just, just going to try to clarify it in three major reasons that he gives. The first one in verses 17 to 18 is he's saying, you, you say that I cast out demons by the power of demons, by the power of Satan, by the power of Beelzebul, the, the prince of demons, the ruler of demons. You're saying that I use demonic power to defeat demonic power. So reason number one, he's like, that's not smart reasoning. That's kind of a stupid reason. That's, a, that's poor reasoning. That's irrational. It's unreasonable. Uh, if he's been casting out demons by, by hundreds, by thousands, possibly, people are freed. The kingdom of hell is diminished in power. And Jesus is like, why would... Satan want to do that, right? If Jesus is working for demons, how in the world is this helping their cause at all? 
Why would the, the, the forces of hell give him the power to defeat the forces of hell? He's like, that doesn't make any sense. That's not good reasoning. A house divided against itself cannot stand. That would be a dumb thing. Reason number two, he says, this isn't even honest reasoning, right? Since when was Satan the author of healing and the author of liberation? When was he the one that gave freedom and set the captives free? When did that ever happen? When was Satan ever the guy that we, learned, uh, that we turned to for that kind of a solution? Not only that, but there were plenty of Jews uh, in Jesus' day. There were plenty of Jews who uh, tried to cast out demons during Jesus' lifetime. There were plenty of Jews that were like that. Even in the apostles' time, in Acts chapter 19, you'll see guys like that. You know, they're trying to cast out demons, and it never works. They always get owned. They're unsuccessful. They, they tried, the Jew, Jews had their own exorcists. The exorcists were not effective. And yet here's Jesus, he's casting out hundreds of demons, possibly thousands of demons, as he's walking around in that short three-year period of his ministry. The Jews couldn't cast out any, even though they tried. So here's the question he's asking. He's like, well, whose power are they using? Whose power are you guys using? If you're saying, I am casting out demons by the power of Satan, successfully, well, who are you guys uh, using to cast out demons then? Unsuccessfully. You're failing. I'm doing a better job than you. If I'm using Satan's power, would you say you're using God's power and it's weaker and less successful, less effective? Is that, is that the way you see it? If the Jews were using God's power, they would be more effective and more successful than Jesus. If everything that they're saying is right, that's how it should go. They should be more successful than the power of Satan. So this isn't honest reasoning. This is, this is where they're calling good evil and evil good. It's just, they're, they're just not being honest about what's, what's going on. The Bible warns us frequently against doing that, and yet that's the trajectory of every society, to call good evil and to call evil good. It's not honest reasoning. So, so to say Jesus is successful by the power of Satan instead of the power of God, that's, just, that's not a, a good look at the, at the facts. Right? And that's why Jesus says, like, your, the, the sons of, of the Jews, your, your sons, who allegedly cast out demons unsuccessfully, they'll be your judges. They'll be the measure by which you're judged. Right? You, you, you think that I'm doing this by satanic power successfully, which means you have a very low view of God's power because it's even less effective. Everything flips around on that. He's like, you've got it all confused. If I'm able to do this and you're not, I'm the one that's connected to heaven and you are not. That's the honest fact. All right, third reasoning, he just says it's not safe reasoning. This is eternally dangerous for you, right? Because he says that in verse, uh, in, in verse 20, uh, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, meaning if I'm right and I'm actually operating by the power of heaven, the finger of God, as the Egyptians said back in Exodus, when, when you see the power of God, it's the finger of God. If, if that's what, what I'm doing, and I'm casting out demons by God's power, that means that you are tragically wrong, and the kingdom of God has come upon you, and you have rejected it. You have blasphemed against it. And that's not a small thing. That's, a, that's an eternal crime. The outcome of that is forever perishing under punishment. It's a dangerous way to think. 
So Jesus puts down the spiritual denial because it's irrational, it's dishonest, and it's dangerous for your eternal outcome. And then right after he's kind of reacted to that accusation, he switches from, uh, from a pretty de- uh, defensive stance. He kind of then draws a line in the sand. If you, know, you understand that metaphor, when you draw a line in the sand, you kind of go, who's on my side and who's on the other side? There's no middle ground. So he's going to take this definitive stance, and he's going to start by using a metaphor that continues this idea of, of casting out demons, okay? Because he just cast out a demon. So he's going to kind of talk about that and turn that into a conversation topic about what it means to be on his team. So, verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Stop there. Simple as that. It's, it's really just a, an easy idea. If you're strong, you can protect your stuff. Good. But if someone stronger comes along, they'll overpower you, they'll take away all your weapons and armor, and now you're left without power and protection. That's what happens when someone stronger comes. So, applying this to getting rid of a demon, only someone stronger than the demon can do that. Only someone stronger than the demon can do that. That makes sense. And if someone stronger than the demon does that, that stronger person has the power to take away the demon's power and the demon's protection. That's someone who is stronger than a demon. He starts there, and that's just kind of like a foundation point, okay? Then he says in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, it's, uh, that's a very, very easy way to say no one is neutral. You don't choose between good and evil. You don't start off in the middle. You don't look around, and then as you're growing up in life, you go, oh, I think I'll go toward evil, or oh, I think I'll go toward good. You don't don't make that choice. You start off under the power of hell. You start off on Team Satan. Everyone starts on the side of hell. You are born with a sinful nature. You are inclined in that direction, and you act it out. And you have to repent. You have to change your whole mindset And you have to trust in Jesus entirely, not partially, but entirely. You have to trust in team Jesus in order to join. And that means you you get repurposed. Now you join team Jesus and you join him in trying to save others, in gathering people together for salvation, right? If you're not helping him gather people for salvation, you're on the wrong team. Like an examination check. If you're not helping gather people to salvation, you are actively scattering people, is what Jesus says. There is no neutral ground. There isn't, oh, I'm not doing either. You are doing one of them. If you're not gathering people to salvation, you are scattering them. You are working against his saving plan. And Jesus makes it crystal clear because there's no salvation without him. There's none. Without, without Jesus, there is no salvation. No matter how hard you try to get someone to fix their lives. You can try to get someone to, uh, to give up 
whatever it is that's messing up their lives, right? They, they, can, they can have all sorts of, of things. We, you know, we say like, oh, we have our demons. We all have our demons. For some of you, it's alcoholism. For some of you, it's laziness, maybe greed or a bad temper or some trauma in, in, in your childhood. All of you have your demons, and we kind of call that demons and stuff. They kind of did that back then too. And you can, you, you can go ahead and just write off of, of, of the momentum of, of, of that kind of thinking, okay? Everyone's got their demons. Everyone's got their thing that's in their head that kind of influences their way of thought, tempts them to think the wrong way, deceives them, gives them a, a tilted worldview. Without Jesus, you can try to get someone to deal with all the demons. And it's not going to fix a thing. And here's why, right? Jesus will connect this back to this whole getting rid of demons, strong man metaphor. Look at verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, unclean spirit is just a demon, right? When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it's this weird, like, weird metaphorical description that Jesus gives about a person who has a demon, an unclean spirit, right? Uh, we're not uh, clear on whether or not he's saying that this person is demon-possessed or... It's just at least under the influence of an evil power. There's some kind of a sin, some kind of an addiction, some kind of a trauma, whatever, some kind of a deceived worldview. There's some kind of demonic power taking place in this person's life, right? Because demons don't just possess people. They can tempt and deceive, and they could whisper to you, you know, et cetera. You can reference our spiritual warfare series for more info on that. But this, this guy, whoever this guy is, he somehow gets rid of this demon, Let's pretend it's alcoholism, right? He just, he's under the power of an addiction. And then he goes, you know what? I have to kick this habit. I need to do it. And so he joins some kind of a recovery group, has a lot of friends that come around him and stuff. He gives up the addiction. Or if it's not the addiction, he controls his temper or he gets therapy or he goes under some kind of a reform and says, I'm not going to act like that anymore, when a demon leaves a person, it passes through waterless places, meaning just wilderness, like desert. It passes through lifeless, boring, nothing-to-do area. And so the demon does not have anything to do in a waterless place. There's nothing to do there, right? That's, that's Israel. Most of it is barren wasteland. So that's what he's talking about. It's just walking through like nothing. And so it's like, I'm going to go back to my house. I'm going to go back to that person that, that I was uh, attached to. So it, uh, the demon wants rest and comfort. doesn't want to be walking around in the, in the wilderness. So the demon returns back to the original person. When it comes, it, everything is swept. Everything's put in order. Look, this guy has his life all cleaned up. Look at that. He's, he's acting all nice. He's got, you know, he's got his whole act together. He's doing his thing. And so he's like, it's, it's great. Not only is it like that, but it's, it's unoccupied. If you look at Matthew 12, it says it's unoccupied. Right? He, the demon comes back, finds that everything's swept, put in order, and it's unoccupied. It's empty. No one else is there. And the demon returns with seven demon friends who are even more evil. And they all live in the man, and he's worse off than before. That's just a weird description, right? I mean, th does that mean everyone who cleans up his life 
gets more demon-possessed later or something like that, or gets more filled with demonic thoughts or something. Well, maybe not possessed, but it does do something if you have fixed your life without Jesus. You got all the therapy and you go like, oh, okay, now I know how to cope. Now I know how, uh, how to, to live with the right thoughts, uh, my mindset, my mentality. And if Jesus isn't part of that, you are worse off than you were before. Did you ever notice that in the Bible, the people who opposed Jesus the most were not immoral people? It was the moral people, the religious elite, the most moral people, the people who had their lives all put together. They were the most vehemently against Jesus. They were the most fervently oppositional against Jesus. Because they had their lives all put together. And they're like, why would you call us to repent? I'm fine. I don't need you. It was the people who had it all together who didn't believe that they needed to repent. They were greater agents of Satan than the prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. Those people, they fully understood, I need to repent. But everyone who was good, they watched their language, they didn't do any of the big sins. Happily married, make money, safe, they don't do anything dishonest. They don't think they need to repent. If a demon was in a person and left, the only way to make sure that a demon stays gone out of that person is to occupy that person with someone who's stronger than a demon. Right? You remember. The stronger person is the one that wins. So if, if there's a demon inside a guy, it takes a stronger guy to get rid of the demon. Now, you have to get the stronger guy to stay there. Now the demon can't come back. If the place is unoccupied, he'll come back with friends. But fill that place with, with the stronger person, and the demon can't come back. If you really want to defeat evil, if you want to, uh, if you want to defeat sin, addiction, trauma, etc., you need not just moral reform, but you need the Savior. You need the one who is actually stronger than demonic power. The one who's able to cast out demons by the finger of God. Fixing up your life without repenting and trusting in Jesus just wedges you deeper into unbelief. Makes you rely more on anything besides Jesus. Makes you unrepentant. Fixes you toward condemnation. And so as Jesus said, if you clean up your act all on your own, you build yourself without him. And when you build yourself without him, you end up without him. And that has its own eternal consequence. Whoever is not with him is without him. Whoever is without him is against him. Whoever's against him goes where, where everyone else who's against him goes. The demons are against him. Where are they going to go? Everyone who's against him goes to the same place. Verse 27. As Jesus said these things, notice it's the same conversation. As Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But Jesus said, and this is in contrast, but Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. 
So this woman hearing Jesus say all this stuff, she, she speaks up and uh, she raises her voice and shouts out so everyone can hear it. So this is a teaching moment for everybody. She goes, blessed is the uh, womb that bore you. Blessed are the breasts at w- uh, which you nursed. Meaning, blessed is your mom. Right? She is incredibly blessed. So that, that can go two ways. This is a, a Middle Eastern compliment. And it can go two ways. It can either mean, she goes, your mom is so lucky to have someone as great as you. That's... Uh, that's one way that it can be understood. Another way to understand it is uh, your mom is so great and that's why you turned out so great. So those are the two ways to understand it. Where, you know, where did the blessing come from? Was it chicken or the egg, right? Is it you are great and that's so your mom is very lucky and she by association gets blessed? Or is it she's great and that's why you turned out so good? Now, Jesus doesn't care. That's, uh, he, he, doesn't really, uh, he doesn't really hold on to this compliment. It is a high compliment in, in the Middle Eastern societies at that time, uh, but it is a worldly thinking that says blessing comes from your family, right? If you came from a good family, you're blessed. Wow, no wonder you turned out so good. That's what she's saying. And Jesus corrects her, and he doesn't outright embarrass her, but he does correct her. He says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So he's not denying the fact that he's a blessing, and he's not denying the fact that his mom is blessed. He's, he's not necessarily denying that, but he's saying that it's not his family that's blessed because of their blood relationship to him. It's not his family that's blessed because they grew up in the same household or had the same people uh, raising them. He says, blessed are the ones who hear the word of God and live by it. That's who's blessed. So... Are, people, are his loved ones and the people that are close to him blessed? Yes. Why? Is it because they're related to him? No. Well, then why are they blessed for being near him? Because they hear the word of God and they obey it. It's a, it's a statement where he's saying, I, I am the source of the word of God. That's why they're blessed. Not because of their blood relationship. That's how the world thinks. They think the, the biology of it will do it. Or the way that you're raised will do it. That's not it. It is everyone's individual moment to hear the word of God and choose to repent and trust. Maybe it'll make more sense if you flip it. You know, it's, it's like blessed is your family because of you, or you're, you're blessed because you're, your family, you came from such a great family. Flip it. Because maybe some of us think that you are cursed because you came from bad parents. Right? You think your parents did such a, a failing job at raising you that that's why you turned out the way you are. And so you're cursed. Or maybe you just think, I'm, I'm a terrible person, and so I curse my family because of it. The, you know, the fact that they're close to me, I bring down the family. I'm the reason why my, my parents suffer, or I'm the reason why they, their lives are hard. And so you, you think that th- your parents are cursed because of you. And you have to realize that what Jesus is saying here is, as far as you're standing with God, whether or not you're blessed or not, whether or not uh, his favorable disposition toward you is there or not, has nothing to do with who your family is or how you are raised. It has everything to do with whether or not you hear the word of God and obey it. That's what defines your blessing. 
your relationship to your earthly parents can certainly result in earthly blessing, but it's your relationship to your spiritual parent, your heavenly father. That's what determines your spiritual blessing. So this frames an understanding of Jesus, that what it means to be with him or against him. You know, he says, whoever's uh, not with me is against me. What does it mean to be with you, Jesus? What does it mean to be with you? Well, it means that you've let the stronger man into your life. He's thrown out the demons, and he stays in there with you. And it also means that you hear the word of God and you obey it. That's the way that he's putting it all together. You're either with him, knowing you're blessed because he gives you the word and you hear it and obey it, or you're against him, believing he's with some demonic power, some other evil power. There is no neutral ground. And then Jesus uh, continues against stubborn skepticism. It continues all in the same conversation after confronting spiritual denial and, uh, and the worldly wisdom and stuff. Uh, verses 29, 29 and 30. We'll just look at that for a sec. Uh, when the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Talking to the people that he's talking to 2,000 years ago, right? Now, we only have one piece of information about why Jesus stands against these crowds. The crowds are increasing, and then he just goes, Oh, this generation. It's an evil generation. Why? Because it demands a sign. It says, prove it, Jesus. We demand a sign. See, because Jesus was famous. People told stories. They heard his messages. They saw his miracles, or they at least talked to people who had witnessed his miracles. and witnessed, uh, they, they've, they've sat there and listened to testimonies. They've experienced healings. They've seen nature rerouted by his power, by his word. And yet, despite the fact that Jesus was matchless in renown, Matchless to anything they've ever seen, they still go, well, you're the Messiah? You're the Savior? Prove it. They dismissed all that happened. They ignored everything the Scripture said, all the testimonies, all of it. They said it's not enough. And, and it's not that they're skeptical because they were taught wrong. It's not like these are people that came from a, a different culture, a different religion. They walked in and someone goes, Jesus is a savior. And they're like, I'm skeptical. It's, it's not that. Those people have reason to be skeptical because they were taught something else entirely. But this is talking to the generation of Jewish people that he's in the middle of right then and there. Right? These are people who had been taught the scriptures, which all pointed to Jesus. And they saw the miracles and things, and they still didn't believe. They refused to believe. They had ample evidence. They had adequate information, more than enough, to make a reasonable deduction about who Jesus is, but instead they demanded more proof. What proof do you need after Jesus is expelling demons and healing incurable diseases that even today, by the power of our technology, can't be fixed, making blind people see, deaf people hear, paralyzed people walk, raising the dead, right? We have, we have these cheap imitations of that by comparison. He can read minds. He can control nature. He can make food out of nothing. What do you need outside of the scriptures? What do you need outside of the sinless character of Jesus? 
At what point do you think you'll be convinced? Well, what do you need? A horoscope? A fortune cookie? A magic eight ball? A voice from heaven? What would it take? Because whatever you name, it's just not going to be enough, even if, if that were to happen. There's more than enough proof demanding a sign for these people means it's just an excuse to stay in unbelief. Because even if he gives a sign, which he's done multiple times, they'd say, well, still, give us another sign. So Jesus says he's not going to do another sign. He's not going to do another miracle for them except for one last one, one last sign for them. It's the sign of Jonah. Jonah, there's a book of Jonah in, in the Old Testament. Uh, Jonah is a prophet, and he was a guy who was, uh, he was you know, commissioned by God to go preach. And uh, on his journeys, he gets swallowed by a, a large sea creature, probably a whale. He gets swallowed, and then he's in there for three days in the belly of a whale. And then after three days, uh, he, he's kind of vomited back out onto land, so he comes back out. Like, that was his grave. He, he was going to die in a watery grave, but after three days, he's, a, he's back. And then he goes to, to preach to the wicked city of Nineveh where God told him to go. He tells them to repent, and, you know, or he warns them of the coming judgment anyway, and they repent in order to be saved from God's wrath. That was what Jonah did. He was a sign. He was a guy that was... He, uh, he was doomed. He was dead for three days, but he comes back, you know, not dead. Jesus was going to do exactly that, but in greater degree. He would truly die, and then on the third day, he'd be raised to life, and his message would continue telling people to repent and trust in him in order to be saved from God's wrath. So the, the final sign, the final miracle that Jesus will give to that generation would be his resurrection, proof that he is the Savior. But Jesus is going to shame his hearers now. Like I said, he kind of moves into this offensive position, and he shames his hearers by bringing up Gentiles, which means non-Jewish people. He brings up Gentiles from the past that are more righteous than the Jews that he's talking to. Look at verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up at the time of the judgment, at the end of time, right? The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation, and she will condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus brings up two big heroes, Solomon and Jonah. And, uh, and he says, someone greater than Solomon, someone greater than Jonah is here. He's referring to himself, right? And he, he frames it in those, in those two instances. The queen of the south is the, is the queen from 1 Kings chapter 10. It's the queen of Sheba, which is modern-day Yemen. Uh, the queen of, of the south, she heard of how the God of Israel made Israel's king Solomon into the wisest man to ever live. And she's like, well, I could use some of that wisdom. You know, I'm a ruler too. I'm a queen. So I have all these hard questions to ask him. How would, he, how would he solve certain problems? How do we solve the economic problem, the poverty issue, and the, you know, how do, we, how do we solve all this kind of stuff? So she wants to go and say, like, what should we do about healthcare? What should we do about education? What should we do about uh, our foreign policy? She, she has all these questions to ask the wisest man to ever live. She came to see him, asked all the questions that she couldn't figure out herself as a ruler, and he answered all of it, and she got to hear the wisdom of God. And at the end of all, hearing all of that, she praises God, 
God, and she praises Solomon. And she goes, undeniably, the hand of God is upon you. Your God is, is the true God. Did she need more signs and a bunch of proof? No. The Ninevites, after they heard Jonah preach, they repented. They didn't ask for proof. Jonah walked around. His message was, in 40 days, your place is going to be destroyed. They didn't go, prove it. They just went, oh, shoot, really? And then they repented. All the Jews knew these stories about Solomon and the uh, Queen of Sheba and the story of Jonah. And Jesus uses that knowledge to shame the, the people that he's talking to for their refusal to believe. And he's done that before. He's done that in chapter 4. He brought up Gentiles in, in Israel's history, Gentiles that were blessed for their faith while the Jews were shamed for their unbelief. Jesus says, those Gentiles, like the Queen of Sheba and the Ninevites, they'll be there in the future judgment. They'll be there sitting on Team Jesus, right there on that side, on those bleachers. While these stubborn skeptics are being judged, the ones that say, give us another sign. Verse 33, he continues. He says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it's bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Now, this is a metaphor of how you see light, specifically how you see Jesus. That's kind of how he's connecting it, right? Jesus is spiritual light. Everything else is spiritual darkness. If you understand that Jesus is light, if you understand that, if you go, Jesus is light. He is the light of the world. He is the answer. He is the solution. He is everything we need. He's the light. If you know Jesus is the light, you don't hide that. You don't put it in a cellar. You don't put it under a basket. You're not skeptical and unconvinced, and you don't go, away. give me more proof. When you know that something is light, you put it on a stand. Naturally, you do that. When you watch a movie that you like, you do that. When you discover a, a new food or dessert that you like, you do that. Anything you like, you kind of advertise. That's the natural human instinct. When you have light, you put it on a stand, you put it on display so others can see. You help others see the light. If you believe Jesus is light, you help others see the light. You help gather people to salvation. You're with him. And your eye is the lamp of your body, which is a weird way of saying that uh, how you see, how you see things affects everything about you. Right? If, you, if you see Jesus as light, you'll be full of light. That's what's going to happen. If you go, Jesus is the answer. He's awesome. Then you just fill up on that, and you become more and more like him. You'll be like him. You'll put him on display. You'll be full of him. Not some of him, not part, but wholly bright, right? Having no part dark, but wholly bright. You don't just take parts of Jesus that you like. You just take him all in because you go, he is light. Not parts of him are light. You take him all in, and then you become like a lamp. And if you don't see Jesus as light, you'll look to something else to fill you, and you'll be filled with darkness. 
So the application here, if, you, if you're trying to like read this text and go, what should I do about this? The application is not, well, just try to see Jesus as light. You, you, can't, you can't do that. You know, you, you, you can't just be like, well, try to like this flavor of ice cream over this one. You can't just change your opinion on that. If anything, this is more just a moment to sit back and examine yourself. What do you see as light? What do you put on display? What do you tell people will satisfy their needs, their truest needs? And then what do you shy away from? What do you not want to bring up? What do you hide? What do you put under a basket? What do you say will, will make their lives better? More money? Better career? Possessions? Health? Fitness? Body image? I mean, you put all that stuff on display by how you live. It's not skepticism demanding proof. It's exhilaration proclaiming good news. When you love something, you put it on display. If your loved ones were asked, what are the five most important things to you? What would they say are the five most important things to you? Everybody who's like close, everyone who's just around me for a, an hour or two, they figure out all the same stuff about me. Everybody uh, near me easily figures out, I love meat, Korean barbecue. I just, I just love meat, right? Uh, I love comic book movies. I love Super Smash Brothers. I love candy. I love soda. It's very easy to figure out what I love because I'm always around that stuff and I'm always trying to get other people on these things. Do people know I love Jesus? And then, do people know that I love Jesus more than these other things? Would they agree to that statement? And I don't mean just church people. Oh, church people know I love Jesus. I mean everyone that's just around me, anyone who gets to know me. You don't put on a lamp just at church and then put it under a bowl when you go to work. If you never spoke a word, could people look at you and undeniably know without a doubt that you are a Christian and that you love Jesus. You either see Jesus as light and you're wholly bright, a lamp to others, or you're unconvinced and you're skeptical. You're just waiting for another sign. Finally, Jesus uh, goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with hypocrisy and works righteousness, which kind of go hand in hand. If you're not familiar with the term works righteousness, that's just uh, that's a big complicated theology word, right? You can call it works righteousness, self-righteousness, uh, ritualism, works-based salvation. There are lots of different ways to say it, but it basically says doing enough good deeds in order to earn points with God, right? You, you do enough and you can, you, can save, you can be saved because you're a good person. It's moralism. Verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, so you see, all of this is still cascading out in the same moment, same conversation. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked Jesus to dine with him. So Jesus went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You fools! 
Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. That's a strange reaction because it just sounds like the Pharisees, like, you didn't wash your hands, Jesus. And Jesus is like, well, you guys. And, you know, it just kind of flies off the handle. It's, it's not about hygiene. Okay? The Pharisees not like germs, Jesus. Uh, this is about a ceremonial custom. A religious custom. And by the way, this custom is not in the Bible. This was society's opinion on what was good, on what was right, on what was holy, on what was required. It was society's opinion. It's just a custom. It's not a written law. Jesus didn't follow their custom. He didn't do what society said he should do. And the Pharisee is astonished. He's like, wow, how can you not be aware of our cultural understanding of what's good? And Jesus just unleashes on this guy. He's like, you fool. Right? He's like, you, you only care about how you look on the outside. You don't even care about what's on the inside. You're like cleaning a cup just on the outside. What would be the point of that? Because you should clean what's on the inside. And in a weird way, Jesus is talking about germs, right? He's like, if you don't clean the inside, that's bad. Bad for you. Why would you just clean the outside? That's just for appearances. The important thing is to clean the inside. The Pharisee does all the ceremonial washing and stuff. He does all the cultural stuff, all the customs. So he looks religious when he eats. He looks like a good person. He looks like he's aware of what everybody thinks in that society. But he's full of greed and wickedness inside. And Jesus says, like, give alms. Give alms. Give to God. Give to your neighbor the things that are within. Your heart, your compassion, your care. So that... When you eat, you have a right relationship, a right posture before the Lord. Just pretending to be holy is not going to do it. That's going to condemn you. But give God your heart and give, give your neighbor your heart. Then, when you sit down and eat, whatever you're eating, ceremonially, it's clean. You don't have to worry if, if God is upset with it. And then Jesus doubles down on how the Pharisees do religious things to look righteous all the while, they're hypocrites. They're, you know, they're evil on the inside. So verse 42, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees! You tithe mint and rue and every herb, and you neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and the greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves. People walk over them without knowing it. Right? They love looking righteous. They love looking like they have it all together. They, they give a tithe, a tenth, of all their herbs and stuff. You know, like they, they, they do the stuff that, that Scripture talks about. They, they do all the behavior. And they sit in like these nice seats so everyone can see them. But Jesus says they're, they're full of death inside. They're like graves. And people don't even realize how full of death you are. They don't realize they're walking over graves. It's bad enough that the Pharisees were hypocrites, right? It's bad enough that the Pharisees were trying to look righteous while they're, while they're actually wicked on the inside. That's bad enough. But Jesus also then unloads on them, not just the Pharisees, but also these lawyers that are with them. He unloads on these lawyers for teaching works righteousness to the people of Israel. 
for teaching Israel to just be good to be saved. Look at verse 45. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Right? Teacher, you're hurting our... Careful. You're attacking the Pharisees. Some of us lawyers, some of us experts in the law happen to be Pharisees. So when you're saying all this stuff, you're kind of attacking us too, you know. That's going to hurt our feelings. And then here's how Jesus responds with this compassion. Verse 46. Woe to you, lawyers, also! Right? He's like, you guys are screwed too. Woe to you, lawyers, also. You load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build your tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I'll send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it'll be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. That's a lot of words. Look at how Jesus fires off these crazy verbal attacks on the Pharisees and on these experts of the law. There's, there's no way to, uh, to walk away from that conversation without feeling publicly attacked and shamed by the guy who can do miracles and throw out demons and heal people. So that's really embarrassing because he just has the... the public favor. He has, he has the, the public uh, opinion. Everyone is like, Jesus must be the real deal. And the Pharisees are being embarrassed by him. Jesus tears into these lawyers, these, these scribes, these experts in the law. And, and he, he really tears into them for, for three things. First, he says, you're loading people with burdens that you don't touch, right? That means you're making all these rules and you can't even live up to these rules. And it's a burden. You tell people how to be righteous, yet none of you are actually righteous. Internally, you're sinful. So you make all these rules, they don't even work, and you you don't even qualify by your rules. Second, he says, you build tombs for the prophets, the the prophets that your fathers, your ancestors, you build tombs for the prophets that your ancestors killed. Like, you aren't outraged at how your ancestors treated the prophets, You're, you're just kind of you know, you're just kind of adjusting and, and moving on. Israel tortured and killed all the prophets. That's, that's just kind of how it went. Nehemiah 9.26, Jeremiah uh, 2 verse 30, I think it is. Hebrews 11. Uh, these are, there are moments where prophets talk about how Israel keeps killing prophets. The lawyers know this. They decorate, uh, and, and they, know, they know that their ancestors killed all these prophets and stuff. And they go around, they decorate these tombs. They build these tombs, they decorate the tombs, try to make reparations for how their fathers treated the prophets. And it's kind of a way of saying like, oh, we're not like our ancestors, we're better. You know, and so we'll, we'll put some flowers on this tomb because we would not have treated them the way our ancestors did. It's kind of this moral superiority. But the lawyers aren't, 
they're not owning it. They're not upset. They're not repenting of anything. They just carried on. They build the tombs. And instead of lamenting, instead of grieving in sackcloth and ashes, tearing their robes, doing the signs of Jewish lament over, over what your family has done, instead of actually making some kind of actual real true expression of grief and regret, they just kind of decorate the tombs and say, like, yeah, we're not, we're not like the people back then. And yet they're so identical to their ancestors that, uh, that God sees that. And he says, I'm, I'm going to send you more prophets and apostles. Right? I'm going to send you prophets and apostles like the 12 apostles. And you're going to do the same thing. This generation, you're going to do the same thing to the prophets and the apostles that I send now. All the New Testament preachers and authors and church leaders, sure enough, Israel persecuted them, killed almost all of them. They're the culmination of everything that's been passed down from their ancestors. They have all of it and more. Right? It's, uh, it, it's why, why God says uh, the blood of all the prophets ever is charged against this generation. From Abel to Zechariah, which coincidentally, from A to Z. Right? All the prophets that ever lived from Abel way back in Genesis 4 first martyr, all the way to Zechariah, the final prophet that died in like 500-something B.C. in front of the sanctuary, was martyred by the people of Israel. All of the prophets in between, they're all killed by Israel. Everything God has been storing up, He's representing you know, all of them and, and what happened to them. And He's saying this generation is the culmination of all the, the ancestors that did that. It's, you know, it's, it's all the Jews being like, I am all the Sith. And then Spirit of God saying, well, I am all the Jedi. You know what I mean? It's like one of those moments, you are the culmination of everything evil. And I then make, make restitution and I set right everything for everyone that was good. It's the opposite of, uh, of, uh, of what the people of God should be doing. They had all the scriptures. They had all the training. They had Jesus in their midst, physically, they saw his miracles, and they rejected it all. And so Jesus, you know, he, he rips into them for loading burdens on people and building the tombs of the prophets instead of repenting. And then last thing he holds against the lawyers is they took away the key of knowledge from the people. They took away the key of knowledge. They took away any chance for people to, to hear and understand the true path to salvation, the knowledge of salvation, right? The lawyers, the lawyers didn't enter into salvation, but they hindered and misled those who were trying to enter. The key that they took away was the right understanding of Scripture and the need for the Christ, whom the Scriptures point to. That's the knowledge you need. You, you need to understand what the Scriptures say, and you need the Christ. Well, these guys, they twisted Scripture and moved everyone away from true understanding of it. And then when the Christ came, they said, He's from the power of the devil. It is the opposite of needing a savior. Totally misses what the Bible teaches. You, you, you can't teach moralism and get people saved. You can't get to heaven by being good enough. You can't. You can't. Your nice relative who passed away, no matter how good they were, can't. The aborigine in some other unreached part of the world who never heard the gospel can't. No one can be saved apart from Jesus. No one. 
No matter how hard you try to wedge it in and say, but, but they're good. You can't. And so God is going to respond. He says, I'm going to hold, I'm going to charge against this generation everything that's happened before. And so Jerusalem will fall in 70 AD, which is, you know, three, four decades after Jesus, about four decades after Jesus. The, the blood of the prophets will be charged against that generation. And that is historically what, excuse me, what happened. It, it all started in the year 66, which is like 36 years after Jesus was crucified. It started around there. Jewish zealots rebelled against Roman rulership by killing a bunch of Romans in open revolt. And then Rome struck back by attacking Galilee for a while. After about four years of doing that, Galilee is northern Israel, after about four years of doing that, a Roman army of about 80,000 plus men uh, advanced on Jerusalem. Jerusalem closed up its walls and its gates. The Jews started laughing at the Romans. It was Passover time. So there were uh, possibly 1.8 to 2 million Jews in Jerusalem, something like that. It's extremely crowded. The Roman army sieged the city. Stones that weighed over 100 pounds were flung at the, at the walls and, the, and at the gates. Battering rams smashed through the barriers. Rome broke through, but the Jews would not surrender. And so Rome walked in with their soldiers, and they slaughtered almost a million people that day. All the trees in that area were cut down to make crosses and campfires. Thousands of Jews were crucified all around the city. Their entire history of, uh, of genealogies and family records was lost, which is why you don't know why, where any Jew comes from, what tribe. Historians say the stench was unbearable. A hundred thousand bodies were just thrown away. They didn't even properly do anything with it because it stank so badly, no one could bear it. So they just saw bodies and they just chucked it outside the city. It resulted in a huge famine. The workforce was diminished to close to nothing. Families, whole families died together. Rome took maybe 100,000 prisoners. And finally, the temple itself was destroyed. And then Rome erected in its place its own idols and made sacrifices there on the holy mount. So when Jesus said that this generation would face the fury of God for how Israel treated the prophets, he was absolutely serious. And he was right. And that was just earthly judgment. That wasn't even the divine, spiritual, eternal judgment. You'd think that the Pharisees and lawyers would hear from this, hear this and, uh, uh, and they'd repent. You'd think they'd hear this warning from the divine miracle worker. You'd think so, but they did not. Verse 53, as Jesus went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees, the lawyers and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. You know what that, that means? That means he's, he's like, okay, I'm done with this place. Drops the mic, turns around, walks off. And as he's going away from there, they're all pressing in on him, asking him more questions and say, what about this? What about this? Prove this. Do this. Provoking him. Lying in wait, trying to catch him. All the evidence they need to know about Jesus is in front of them. He is the Savior, and yet they call him a devil. They hope to trap him. They try to kill him. 
And it seems outlandish that people would, would act like this to someone who is so obviously divine. And yet still, you understand this is the case today, right? Like, you know, that's still how it is today. Jesus is God. And Jesus has opinions on all sorts of things about right and wrong. Things that aren't flexible or customizable or modernizable with culture. I mean, everybody likes the the good things about Jesus. They like the compassion and the kindness. They like the forgiveness thing. They like the healing and the feeding. They like his humility. They like all of that stuff. But there's always that one thing that if you say it, if you say this is what Jesus says, it's absolutely right and wrong. He says, you have to take all of me or you have no part with me. There's always that one thing that sets people off in every society. Have you noticed our society's regard for Jesus? The healer, the forgiver, the one who who feeds the poor and the hungry, right? We should love him. Everyone should love him. That's exactly what everybody wants in every society. And yet there's always that one thing. Why? Because Jesus has absolute opinions. And by opinions, I mean he has the truth on things that society vehemently and fervently disagrees with. He has opinions on when life begins, namely at conception, and what we're called to do, given that every life is made in the image of God. He has opinions on who decides if you're a man or a woman, namely that's God, as he designed you, according to your biology, not by how you identify. That's just a complicated way of saying you're pretending to be. He has opinions on sex, that it belongs under the bonds of marriage. He has opinions on who you can marry. One man, one woman, one covenant, one lifetime. He has opinions on how you're supposed to take care of the poor, which is you give to the poor and you give to the government and the government gives to the poor. He has opinions on what you do with criminals that commit certain grievous crimes. Capital punishment. He has opinions on what to do if you're divorced. In most cases, stay divorced. He has opinions on the roles of men and women. They are not the same. They are different. Spiritual leadership is male, non-negotiable. He makes all of that very known, very clearly, very often in his word. How do you hear it? When you hear it, is that light or is it darkness? You cannot pick and choose just the parts you like. You're either with him or against him. You take all of him or you have no part with him. You submit to him or you are against him. Either Jesus is divine or he's a lunatic. 
You can't just pick the parts you like. You take him as he is. If he's God, then even when you disagree with him, you know who's right. If he's light, then anything he stands against, anything he disagrees with is darkness. And if you stand on the ground of your culture, because that's what your society has come to discover and to uphold and endorse, his remark is, you fool. You're either with him or against him. If you're with him, you put him on display and you point people to him, not your version of him and not just parts of him, not just the parts that you like. If you're with him, he is light and you put him on display and that gives light to others and they can enter into salvation. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard saying. But we need to know. We need to know it. It's easy, Lord, to just take a, a partial version of Jesus that we like. And it's easy to try to adapt him and add him to or sprinkle him onto the template that we, we get from our culture. It's easy to adopt our worldview from unbelievers and then try to make Jesus yield to that. But you are the source of the word of God. Blessed are those who hear it and obey it. Blessed are those who know who you are. They see you and they see light. And when they see light, their whole body is full of light. They put it on display. Blessed are those who give that light to the people around them. Those are the ones who are with you. Those are the ones who gather with you. And so we pray, God, that we would aim our hearts to yield. It's hard because we've grown up with so many voices in our heads. Voices that have power in our hearts. We have so many opinions, so many values thrust upon us by the world, by people who formed opinions apart from Jesus. Lord, we need you to come and deal with that. We need a stronger man to come and to remove whatever strong opinions, strong thoughts, strong influences are in our minds. And we need you to reside there, to stay there, so that we, we remain in truth, that we bask in the light, that we are with you. Lord, we pray that you'd bless this church, that you would call us to repentance, not just sit here to try to affirm the things that we think we know, but to come blow us away with that crazy countercultural message that you did thousands of years ago. And to keep astonishing us today that culture is not Lord, Christ is. We pray, God, that we would yield only to you, that we would stand firm on you, 
take refuge in you, knowing that when the judgment comes, we'll stand on Team Jesus and glorify you. Bless your church, Lord. Thank you. We pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.